Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Triple R's Bite Into It. It's us. It's Laura Summers. Hello. Hey, hey. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Um, we're really thrilled to be here on this balmy afternoon in Melbourne. It's treating us super well. Tonight we have a really interesting, we hope, show for you. We are going to be joined by Thomas Drake, who is a US-based veteran, a former NSA employee and a whistleblower. He'll be speaking about surveillance and uh, he was slated to deliver a talk at the recent CyberCon event in Melbourne and we'll talk about how that didn't quite come off the way it was expected to. Also, we'll speak with the Latrobe University academic about a recent report on incidents of cybercrime in Australia. So it's a very cybercrime surveillance type of deep dark world we'll be delving into this evening. Before we get there, we do have a little moment of levity. Laura, what significant event has just happened? Well, today is actually the 50th anniversary of the internet. Yay! Happy Happy birthday, birthday, internet. (laughs) That was a good jinx. Not to be confused with the World Wide Web. Exactly. Um, So, yes, we we are 50 years on. Connection speeds and across the world very enormously. Um, They love this quote I saw from Kathy Reed on Twitter. Remember, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed from at Great Dismal, who's very entertaining on Twitter. William Gibson's wonderful. (laughs) Yes, indeed. Um, But yes, uh, 50 years ago today at UCLA, the internet was born. Um, Do we need to say more? I think we should say it was born out of a a side project that started with uh, what was called DARPAnet. That's right. It was a a defense research project, really, Mm. and uh, a fun way for academics to, to, you know, well, I guess military academics. Mm, To to share their research. Yeah, experiment Mm -hmm. with um, distributing information in a way that wouldn't be vulnerable to certain sorts of attacks. So mm. what they wanted to create was a very robust type of network where if you took away some nodes, um, the rest of the nodes would still be resilient enough to transfer information. Exactly. Is that enough? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's I enough on that. It. We've yeah. got so many exciting things to get I know, I'm like, can, to. We just, can we just get to the <laughs> dark edges of the dark web? I'm ready. It's a spooky show too because we're nearly at Halloween, so I feel like it's all thematic. Are we? Yes, mm. we are on theme. It Yay is. us. That's yeah. rare for us. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's pretty hard for us to do things for St. Patrick's Day that are relevant. Mm. Yeah. Clover. Some holidays are better than others. Clovers. I'm sure there's apps. <laughs> I'm sure there are. There's also talking of deep, dark corners of the web. Um, You've probably heard about this WhatsApp hack that happened um, from the Israeli group um, who was... The NSO group. The NSO group. Um, So there's been a little bit of movement on that story. What's happening, Vanessa? Uh, Well, we've heard that uh, WhatsApp has sued an Israeli surveillance firm, accusing it of helping government spies break into the phones of um, about 1,400 users across um, quite a few different countries in what they're calling a hacking spree. Uh, This is what Reuters called it. Um, And the targets included, um, you know, high-ranking government officials, diplomats, political dissidents, um, journalists, So a whole range of people with sensitive information. The whole point of WhatsApp um, is that people are assured that it is encrypted end-to-end and that that provides people with a certain amount of um, 
safety feeling. It also got acquired by Facebook. You, you, know, knew, the, you knew where I was going. Yeah. Vanessa saw my face and she's yeah. like, caveat. But, <laughs> but. And then um, the founders mm. of WhatsApp who'd moved with it to Facebook temporarily then uh, left the project uh, and cited their concerns that the the project had drifted from their original intent. So that's a known <clears throat> thing. Uh, lots of activists move themselves over to things like Signal, Telegram. I don't know where the current state of play is with those things. I'm not posting any sensitive data myself that isn't behind in a VPN. Um, but that's that's probably a raw take on this. But to mm. to go deeper, um, the NSO have released a statement disputing the allegations levelled against them, um, saying that they're only there to provide technology to licensed government intelligence and law enforcement agencies to help them fight terrorism and serious crime. That's really interesting mm. because I guess we are coming up in this part of the world where we are seeing laws not keeping up with things, where there's maybe a gap between you know intent and operation. There's also a gap in between public expectation and... Um, you know, the yeah, sort of normative limits of government surveillance, I guess. Precisely. Yes. Please, Laura, go yeah, jump in. Yeah, well, for sure, I think the concept of, um, I mean, this is kind of boils down to who guards, you know, the guards or who watches the watchmen. Like, you don't, if you don't make it public how these um, hacks are being allowed to go out and if you don't have government sort of public-facing authorities that are able to make it make it visible or have some layer of oversight then like mm. who knows and and you take that that issue and then you add in this sort of question of like once you unscrew the cookie jar and put the lid down and like let someone check their hand in like are they really only going to be searching or you know trying to capture data against legitimate targets and what how are they going to slide into just like other areas of curiosity like what's that What's that solicitor up to? What's that yeah. person who's into journalism on human rights or digital yes. rights? Like those kinds of questions are very um, hard when you when you're working in a system that's completely opaque. It's a black box, and often not just to the public, but also within an organization. Like you may have no idea who else is searching and what they're doing. I think we should definitely look at this too in the context of how huge a tool WhatsApp is, and that if the encryption has been broken, that essentially means that it is now insecure, and mm. you know we cannot believe the assurances that we're given from the platform. Yep. So we've got some 1.5 billion people a monthly active users of WhatsApp uh, and I wasn't surprised by that figure because my mother is in WhatsApp and that for me is a bit of a, a test like a generational test like is a tool multi-generational mm -hmm. you know that that says a certain something to me and mm -hmm. when I can see three generations of people in a tool I'm like right that is that is massive and can have huge effects. Mm. Um, just to just to finish off um, one of the researchers at Citizen Lab John Scott Railton um, wrote a quote about this which I think is pretty apt um, saying while telling the public it is concerned about human rights the commercial spyware industry has attempted to carve out an unaccountable space for itself, where by virtue of its proximity to governments, it claims it is acting lawfully, yet prefers to disclaim any responsibility for that behavior when it suits them. Mm. So that's that issue of like, are, is the person who built the app or built the hack um, responsible for then the misuse of that thing in the public domain or a human rights violation? And I think these sort of questions of like the chain of responsibility um, need further legal attention, need more, more sort of like serious thought if we're going to let people be building these systems like 
this in the first place. Definitely. We have one more piece of news um, before we head into the depths of the show this evening. It's something we've been following for a little while. So a while back we've been reporting that Google workers were protesting about the possibility that they would work on um, AI to develop weapons um, in term- with some contracts for the government, the US government. Um, AI dropped out of competing for that tender. However, the the winner of the tender has been announced. So the US Department of Defense has awarded Microsoft the 10-year um $10 billion cloud services contract. Uh, and it had a lot of competition. I mean, mm. IBM and Oracle and Amazon were all in the running for this contract. It is, uh, we believe, the biggest internet technology contract in military history. But also, um, you know, there's there's a lot of unknowns about the extent of the project. Obviously, being military, you know, not everything's completely transparent. So that's a pretty significant contract win, and we'd expect to hear a lot more reporting on this as it as it uh, progresses, you know, over the next decade. Interestingly, Microsoft also has been trying to claim a stake in the space of AI ethics governance and AI ethics like tooling and developer um, methodologies, and I think that it's a very much at odds with taking a contract like this. So mm. it'll be interesting to see how like. This, this overall governance of an AI thing rolls out when we start seeing people like acting very much in contrast to what they say their stated goals or their stated values are. Yeah, and Google has also said that it cares about this and then they've mm. acted on that. You well, they know. actually dropped out of the, that's at the tender, right. which is it's a pretty big loss in terms of income. So like that's... It's me, an amazing action. Yeah. Which uh, we see, you know, very few of those in this space when there's that much money involved. So, mm-hmm. yep. Well done to Google on that front. Uh, and, you know, I guess I'd say success to the employees who actually made a noise about this and, and started agitating. You know, it's a combination of um, employees and, you know, political will within the organisation. Pretty impressive. Hey, we do have an interview coming up with USA, uh, USA-based NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thomas, are you there? Hello, hello. This is my whole world. I can hear you. Oh, hello. We've got you. Which channel are we hearing you on? Um... I don't know. Okay, so Thomas, thank you so yes. much for bearing with us. That was incredibly embarrassing. This is like live demos 101. Um, so you were invited to come and speak at the Australian Cyber Conference in Melbourne a few weeks ago, otherwise known as CyberCon, otherwise known as Australia's attempt at DEF CON, but not as cool. <laughs> Sorry, but it's ah. um, Please tell us about what you were going to speak about and then what happened Well, I was actually invited back in November of 2018 and submitted my abstract and title for my talk, which was called The Golden Age of Surveillance, uh, earlier in the year. In fact, it was back in the spring. And four days before I got on an airplane to come to Australia, 10,000 miles away from you, I have got an urgent call from the organizers, and they said that I had been removed as a speaker. And And when I followed up, go ahead. And they didn't tell you why they just said you'd been removed? Well, not until I came um, came to Australia. And when, when I asked formally why, they said that my presentation was incongruent with the conference. And that was from their government partner. More recently, this past week, the head of the Australian Cybersecurity uh, Center, Rachel Noble, said that she was the one that made the decision to remove me 
uh, can me as a speaker along with an academic, uh, Dr. Dreyfus from the University of Melbourne. Yeah, she's been a, a guest on our show many times. She's um, incredibly informed. Yeah. Now, she claimed she made the decision based on a proposal for her and myself to have a panel with uh, Edward Snowden. But my understanding is I was never actually invited to a panel. Um, there's an article that's uh, coming out. In fact, it's online in the Canberra Times from Katie Burgess Um that it was that was just an idea. It was more of a thought bubble than anything. There was and there was no panel in which uh, I would I would have accepted such an invitation, but I never received such an invitation. In fact, I wasn't even speaking on whistleblowing. I was actually speaking on surveillance, uh, data. How do we protect ourselves? I was mm-hmm. actually focusing on cyber insecurity at the cyber security conference. Mm. Yes, I've had a look. Thank you so much, by the way, for sharing your slides and your um, your abstract online. That's actually very helpful for those of us who are excited about seeing you and then we're not able to get to see you in the day. Um, and yeah, from having a look at your talk, it looks like it's a lot about IoT security and personal data practices and, and um, data hygiene. Like it doesn't seem like you're sort of ringing the bell saying, come here, come here, whistleblowers. Um, and it's very disappointing for those of us in Australia, especially being aware that we don't have and a rights act, a civil rights act that protects things like free speech to, to see something that seems kind of vacuous happen where you just see someone freak out a little bit and go, oh, something to do with whistleblower and Edward Snowden, perhaps we won't have them after all. Um, I think, yeah, I think that was a foil. I personally think it was uh, my background, the fact that I've been a senior executive at the National Security Agency, that I was a public figure and that I've been a whistleblower as well. Mm. involving government wrongdoing and the original uh, basis for the domestic mass domestic surveillance program and 9-11 intelligence failures and subsequent cover-up. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet that was held against me. It, ironically enough, this is the first time, and it didn't. It took until I was down under, as we say, up, uh, up over. <laughs> this <laughs> yeah. is the first time that, that I was actually censored. Mm-hmm. I had been in Australia uh, over five years ago in which I actually spoke on similar topics and privacy and in gov- government um, abuse and and all of those related uh, items, including data and the Internet. And what does it mean in the digital age mm-hmm. and all this vast amounts of data being collected on us? And how do we protect ourselves? And what does it mean when someone gets data without our consent? I, I spoke I was on a speaking tour between Brisbane, actually I was at the Splendor and the Grass uh, Festival, and then I was in Melbourne for a few days, and then I was in Sydney, never had any issues at all. This is the first time anywhere I've spoken where I was actually censored. Splendor in the grass makes you sound like a pretty hip speaker. Uh, the so the object ah. <laughs> so the objectives of this uh, cybercon were said to be about helping Australians raise their awareness and technical knowledge about cybersecurity issues. Given that you have so much experience in this space, I wonder if we could help our listeners get a bit of your experience there and um, and hear from you about you know what you think the really pressing emergent issues are for the average citizen. Well, I think, you know, this is the digital age and vast amounts of data are now, you know, generated by us. In essence, we're, we're data generators. Um, and the issue is a lot of it is not under our control. A lot of it is kept by businesses. A lot of it's kept by data brokers. 
financial concerns, uh, IT companies, and the ones that you hear about, like the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. And what happens when they use that? Not necessarily with your permission. And I think that's a fundamental issue in terms of who we are as individuals and our agency. Um, and how do we express that? And the concern is this data is essentially permanent. It doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. It's not like having a conversation face to face. It's only you know between the two people that are speaking. We actually have data that persists for days, weeks, months, and now even years. Um, certainly, the one of the pressing points brought up by the Cambridge Analytica um, events of 2016 was this idea that people who filled out a survey were then you know, in some way roping in their nearby, like the people in their networks to also have their data exposed and harvested and then used for this psychographic development totally without their knowledge, which kind of speaks to the point you're making, which is that we don't know and we're not consenting to this use of our data. Um, I'm just wondering if you have any positive stories or positive developments you can tell us about, about how we might consider what a, a more constructive consent um might look like in the digital era like do you do you have any ideas about what that could be or can you s speak to any companies you think are doing it well well i mean i mean the drift is to collect data right so i mean there's companies out there that don't consider themselves to be purveyors of information or in essence making profit off who you are in the digital age based on data or at least they provide you the option to opt in and they just don't take it for other purposes. I mean, one, one of the concerns, even Facebook is now having to face its own reckoning. I mean, there's been a number, a number of articles published, not just in the United States, uh, but also in Europe and elsewhere regarding the fact that they're having to confront this reality because in essence, what you've given up is for a free service uh, under the terms and conditions, which my, my legal beagle uh, lawyer friends tell me is a contract of adhesion if unless you say yes or click on okay, guess what, right? You can't use the service. Mm. So this this is sort of the, the Faustian bargain. We we have access to these services, but we give up uh, many says what we do or what happens to that data. And it's being used, as you mentioned, Cambridge Analytica was one of those that was harvesting on a rather vast scale, including all the people you are connected to. Um, so one of the pitches I've heard recently is this idea that we as individuals might get paid for our data. So the the concept that the companies are using our data and it's a it's a good it's an oil, you know, I think um, it was recently called like more valuable than oil. Um, so do you think that's a useful um, way of changing the incentive structure or changing the framing of the problem so that we have more agency? Well, see, that's what it comes back to is agency, is how much control do you have? And just like I decide, you know, whether I let someone into like my house or apartment or not, that should be the same case with where I see myself showing up digitally um, out there in the Internet of Things. The, the issue is fundamentally that many companies have commoditized this. They've commercialized it. Yeah. And that's where sort of the larger surveillance issues uh, arise. But do and what you, do we face? Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to. Sorry, I, w I was. Um, I think perhaps I didn't ask the question well. Like I'm, I'm curious about this idea that companies might start to sort of identify 
the value of the data they're harvesting off us and pay us directly for it. Like we would actually get paid for permission to use, for instance, our Facebook data or our Instagram data or some combination of those things. And that there's like an immediate commercial trade between individuals and companies for the use of that data beyond, yeah, beyond I've, consent. I've, beyond consent. I have heard that. I mean, it's another form of it in which it's sort of the reverse of which, what is essentially been a one-way commoditization, then selling it back to us. This way you're actually a participant in that process. Uh, in which you actually do earn. I mean, there are some services where you provide, you know, the people that actually curate information and get paid for it um, for the benefit of those who follow them. You know, there are these Patreon accounts, for example, and that's, that is another means by which, by which people can actually participate and actually earn money from it. The larger issue for me is when it's done without your knowledge at all, and it's used for other nefarious purposes, or as is one based on my own background, is when it's actually being, when everybody's assumed to be suspicious, and we just might need the data later just in case. So we get you and and many many innocents simply get swept up in all this. Hmm. Um, interestingly, I've heard a, an idea about this concept of like this perpetual storing of big data and storage first and, you know, work out what it means later. Um, that basically is pitching the concept that it, uh, vast numbers of people um, doing this kind of data storage, data warehousing work, aren't even adding enough structure for the data to be that useful. And it's sort of essentially just sitting there using up server bank space and electricity without actually adding any value or allowing anybody to infer meaning from it. Um, and and I guess like this is perhaps a little bit of a cheeky question, but I'm curious to know, do you think um, these surveillance, uh, like, you know, the NSA and over here, the, you know, like the ASIO, like, do you think they're succeeding at capturing useful data like is are they actually you know putting good metadata in there are they are they getting meaning from it is it actually like helping them do the actual work of protecting the country or do you think a lot of it is just cruft sitting on servers getting new value i think the latter is is the case where it's just collecting it i mean this is something i was confronted by right after 9 11 where i was told oh we just need the data we never know. We just need the data. So it didn't really matter what it was. It was just in case we needed it. And because of the, such if you're a corporation or a government entity, the cost of technology has fallen so far uh, and so fast over, over the intervening years that I can store vast amounts of data for relatively little cost, essentially approaches zero. The problem is much of it is just in there. How do you then extract? How do you make meaning of it? especially if you removed it from its own context. I mean, this is a major, major issue. So now you have, it's a big data problem, right? So it's a really, so we need a lot of money. So we need big money to solve a big data problem when in fact the problem is in fact big data. Mm. On the other hand, if I'm an Amazon, for example, Amazon is extraordinarily efficient in terms of demographics of knowing what you're buying, what friend, you know, people that you're connected to are buying, others who've made recommendations and even making suggestions. But I don't actually mind that per se, because at least I know that's what they're doing with it. It's what else is being done with the data that we don't even know about. What mm. else is being done when you bring all this together, sort of in a matrix? Then what do I find out about you? And then mm. I can target you, as it were, whether, whether or not you are up to, you know, most people are, not, are, are up to good. They're not up to no good. But why then use it against you uh, 
just because you can, or it's just sitting out there. But this is actually a very, a very significant issue is trying to make sense mm. of large amounts of data, particularly when it's removed from its original context. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm really sorry because this is such a fascinating topic and I could honestly ask you 10 more questions, but <laughs> we need to wrap up. Oh, well, uh, I understand. Um, thank you so much for bearing with us, um, Thomas Drake, and thank you for your work in exposing NSA problems to the public. I read your wiki um, profile on the way to the show, and I was just like my jaw was dropping the entire time. Um, I, I think um, your work has been extremely valuable, and obviously you inspired Edward Snowden to, um, to then go on to the, uh, to the news um, people as opposed to trying to go through the formal channels because he knew he would be retaliated against. Um, I, yeah, I basically can't fangirl at you enough. <laughs> you <laughs> should bit, see the body language. Oh, yeah. well. <laughs> I'm so excited that you came no, on the show. No, it's still surreal for me. It's just that I couldn't remain silent. And it is ironic that they attempted to silence me. In fact, mm. it was the head of you know the ACSC uh, that did so. And yet more people now know about what I was going to talk about that I couldn't have talked about that would have actually heard what I was going to talk about if they if I'd been allowed to talk. Absolutely. So, Look, we highly thanks, recommend thanks for giving me a voice. <laughs> Even our if pleasure. it is at about 4 a.m. in your time. So yes. thanks so much, Mr. Thomas Drake, for being with us. Our listeners can follow you on Twitter at Thomas underscore Drake one. Have a very good morning. We hope you get a little bit more sleep. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks, Thomas. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. We've just been joined in studio by Dr. Nalan Arachiaga. Oh, I'm still working on it. Dr. Nalan Arachiaga. I hope that I tried to do that justice. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. Very good to have you. And um, it would be amazing if your mic was pointing horizontally exactly at your face rather than tilt. Perfect. That would Beautiful. be amazing. Uh, we're removing all of the veils between the mystery yeah, of radio breaking, and breaking the show. the fourth wall like, wildly today. It's just, it's just been everything crumbling down and technology letting us down. We appreciate you bearing with us this evening, mm. dear listeners. Look, Dr. Nalan, you are an, an academic at La Trobe University and following the release of the Australian Cybersecurity Statistics, which stated that Australians are reporting incidents of cybercrime about every 10 minutes um, and Victoria being named the nation's cybercrime hotspot, we thought that we needed to speak to somebody like you to get a bit of insight into what's going on here. Now, you're a senior senior research fellow in cybersecurity with the Department of Computer Science and Information Technology at La Trobe University. Um, What can you tell us, Dr. Nalan, about these these uh, new statistics. Yeah, that, that's that's right. And Victoria has become uh, the Australia's best performing economy. So the that helps us to get a lot of uh, job, uh, the healthy job market, as well as a growing number of population kind of things, uh, which the attackers are quite interested in. If you look at the 2019 um, FBI report, it talks about a uh, pretty much 
um, 26 US billion dollars in, 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 in global losses over the, over the last three years due to these social engineering and phishing attacks. The attackers are quite interested in all of these statistics. So the growing number of population so that they can make the sophisticated attack across the large population. Not only that, they are, they're after money. Um, so that's why they are quite interested in uh, all of these statistics before making the attack successful. Yes, I'd never thought about the crime statistics as a healthy indicator of a strong economy, but that's a really interesting lens on this. Um, and I guess it does make sense that we've become a richer, a literally a richer target for, for hackers. Could you break down um, some of the types of cybercrime that you're seeing here? You quickly mentioned phishing attacks there, but um, what is what is the range of, of crime that you're seeing under the definition of cybercrime? So I think the more sophisticated attack is phishing. Yes. The- the art of human hacking. So the breaking into humans' mindset yes. is it's, it's, it's the most kind of complex and popular strategy attackers employ um, because breaking into people's mindset is quite easy rather than exploiting technology uh, through uh, different types of attacks such as uh, distributed downloadable service attack, uh, botnet, zombies, such and such things. Um, so always which is easier cost to effective. socially engineer than Correct. it is to hack. Correct. Yeah. That's right. Right. Very curious to know who in the studio is actually being fished. I've had lots of phishing attempts. You have phishing I, I attempts. Well, not not like you know, been not actually given the money or something. No, Bitcoin, exactly. But have you had people attempt to? Yes. Yes. Definitely. And were any of them believable? Did you think that anyone might have actually had access to some kind of secure document or image or something about you that they shouldn't have? I believe that the some of the banking ones have been very sophisticated, and if you weren't the sort of person who kept track of which bank you're with or you changed banks a lot, maybe you'd be susceptible to those ones. Mm. Yeah. What, what do you think? Right. What does the Actually, evidence yesterday say? Yesterday I just came out of uh, NAB and I was like literally working on a kind of a research project with them and I've just received a strange text message from somebody which I'm not quite familiar with. Um, your NAB idea has been locked for security reasons. Please log in and verify your identity. I said thank you very much. I'm, I'm just just coming out of the NAB talking to the security specialist. Um, thanks for your advice, and I would certainly do keep that in my mind. Oh, so, that, so do you think that a geolocation thing has been involved there? Um, not only Ooh. that, but also all the other statistics, because you don't have to particularly get geolocation information as long as we've got our phone numbers on our website. <laughs> yes. If you want to go and have a look at more information, perhaps we put our phone numbers on LinkedIn because we are interested in having the next call from a recruiter um, uh, and we are so interested in that and also Wikipedia um, and uh, Facebook Twitter, uh, even more professional websites like I've got uh, I'm a secret expert but I've got Mm. a uh, Luttrop University professional website so they can find my email address as well as phone number on the website I like that you're letting us know that there actually is a lot we can do then because if, if it's us putting our data out there that's making us more vulnerable, then what would your recommendations be to reduce our risk of being targeted for cybercrime? Cyber so the attackers are quite interested in exploiting human, uh, breaking into humans' mindset. So they use various types of strategies, as I mentioned, the art of human hacking through 
emails or text messages, your unsolicited email. So in that case, sometimes attackers might send you a text message, ask you to, in which which makes you enticing to click on that yes. link or download a suspicious uh, attachment or document mm. um, and then they wanted to steal your credential like username, password, uh, a banking details kind of things like that. So you need to be mindful. Do not click on suspicious links or do not download suspicious attachment that's yeah. number one and also be mindful about the text message as well because if that is something like enticing you to click on or, or, or do an immediate action uh, that is something suspicious because your bank will never ever send you an email asking you to click on that and <laughs> disclose your information. That's a common sense. Mm. Use goddamn brain <laughs> when we receive this kind of information. To be fair, I mean, I agree when I think the, those of us in the room can say, obviously, you would never do that. That's poor security practice. But like my parents have both been fished in various ways in the past couple of years. And my mom, for instance, received an email that purported to come from me and was selling her some keto diet nonsense. So, and she bought it. Come and on, she, Laura. You know, I know you could I, be open your mind. You could yeah. be hopping onto the keto diet. Yeah, really. I really want my mom to have diarrhea for a month. Like that's not, that's not my jam. Okay. Like I think it's, it's a terrible, it's a terrible idea. And it's, it's a really un, unethical product um, or product set. But my mom, I mean, like she doesn't have that like you know spidey sense that it isn't me and I, I think like that that thing you talked about like that human hacking like they're they're building on trusted networks they're building on this idea of like it's probably obvious from my mom's email trial like who she communicates with most frequently and it's probably me because I'm one of the most tech literate people in my in my family um, and she probably likes exchanging nutritional information because she's a mum, and all the mums I know love doing that I know right <laughs> so like you know you take the two things so so I, I think like I agree use your common sense but do you have any tips for people especially people like my mum, who maybe don't have that developed spidey sense about what is sus or what is what is potentially like a third party in sort of and injecting themselves into a conversation like mm. that like what are what are the tips about how to how to identify who those people are yeah so education training professionalism that those are the things that you need to pay attention particularly educate yourself so how do we do that and when mm. you mm. have a um, uh, uh, when you uh, try to share information or the Facebook or any other social networking site, think about your phone number, your pictures, your friends' pictures. Or some, think about if that could access by a cyber criminal, will that cause a, a, a detrimental effect against me or financial loss or reputation loss, something like that? What would be the detrimental effect that could cause by that? Think about mm -hmm. it before mm -hmm. sharing your information. But mm -hmm. there are heaps of information on online so you can educate yourself how to protect yourself against phishing attempts, phishing attacks. So if you go and have a look at the uh, Australian Cyber Security Centre uh, together with um, Australian Signals Directorate, they have identified top eight mitigation strategies in order to combat against these attacks, in order to minimise the potential risks. But they claim it is more than 80% of cyber attacks could be mitigated by mm. uh, uh, to, through these mitigation strategies mm. so educate yourselves against that uh, that is very important in, mm. in 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 addition to that also be mindful uh, every time when you when you when you log in on online when you're online so make a 
uh, a sensitive when you're making sensitive trust decision be mindful about it Mm. So uh, we've spoken a lot about individuals and their risk. What about the risk of companies? It's a cause which is quite high as well because if you look at uh, recent cyber attacks, ransomware attacks um, occurred in um, uh, Victoria hospitals, um, mm. and not only that, if you look at if you if you look at the history back in 2016-17, we have had Petia ransomware attack. We have had a Wonka ransomware attack, which impacted a lot more hospitals, a lot of hospitals in the United uh, United Kingdom. Yes. So the healthcare system, particularly, uh, that was the, the the massive threat to the healthcare system. And think about situations. You know, people are the attackers are targeting human. Humans are the weakest link in information security. So what they do initially, it was just ransomware attacks, obviously, mm. but they started off with uh, phishing. So otherwise, attacker himself would be the first victim for his own attack. Because when you, you need to get somebody, you need to entice somebody to click on the particular Look, I agree. link. And, and working for corporations, I think we're seeing education programs you know, over the last at least five years where they're talking, they're trying to educate their staff. Yeah. Please don't click on suspicious things. Do you think it's become harder? Because, pers- you know, it's only anecdotal experience, but I remember when I'd get phishing emails and there'd be terrible spelling errors and it was very obvious that this was an unprofessional email. Do you think that the, the fishers have gotten better? Because it's very hard to stop it because they employ social engineering the art of human hacking breaking mm. into people's mindset mm. rather than exploiting technology if it is exploiting technology we can use the artificial intelligence mm. uh, and machine learning technology to develop uh, anti-phishing tools but mm. they're not 100 percent 100 percent reliable in detecting and protecting against these attacks because the thing is attackers use a different strategy to uh, 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 break into people's mindset mm. you know uh, lure people to disclose their credentials such as username password mm. uh, credit card debit card information i um, feel, oh, no, I, I was going to ask if you had any opinions on like these websites like have i been pawned and like the ones that go through and debunk which which um stories going around the internet are like legit and which ones are you know phishing scams or other attempts to hack people like do you find those resources to be reasonably good or do you think they get out of date too fast or or and another thing i've heard which is nefarious is the idea that people who want to hack go on there to see who's actually trafficking to the website and use that as a way of like trying to identify potential victims (laughs) which is scary wow that's a real conspiracy i know right like well we're going into the deep dark web today we're sorry we've asked you about three questions at once Mm. there but but do you think Mm -hmm. that some of those investigative sites like have i been pwned are any use um for example Oh, I guess have I been pwned is the only one I'm thinking of right now. But I guess, you know, when you, when there are websites that say, put your details in here and we'll check, you know, whether you have any of these vulnerabilities, say, um, in your there's browser. There's another one whose name I'm forgetting, but, that, you know, like you can put in like Nigerian prince and it will be like, this is a scam. So it, it has like a database. Oh, Snopes, for Snopes, example. Snopes, that's the like, one. Like Snopes. Yeah. Do you think any of those sites are, are kind of helpful resources? Um, of course, if that educates yourself against how to distinguish legitimate attack, a legitimate situation, email or uh, uh, um, a URL against phishing attempts. Yes, of course, if it helps you to do that, that's I think I would certainly recommend. Um, 
Dr. Nalan Arakilage, I'm sorry that I'm butchering your surname, but I'm making a good ham-fisted go at it every time. That's all You're right. <laughs> from Latrobe's um, uh, IT team, and I am so grateful that you've come to talk about the findings in cybercrime in Australia at the moment. It's really interesting that Victoria is so high up in those um, in those sort of uh, areas. Um, people can follow you on Twitter if they'd like to find out more about the sort of research you're doing. Um, at Nalin, N-A-L-I-N, Asanka, A-S-A-N-K-A, numeral one. And uh, I That's hope right. that they, they do follow you to, to keep in touch with your research. Thanks so much for speaking with us this evening. Thanks for having me here. It's been a pleasure. All right, we have a couple of, uh, maybe one quick event to announce before we get out of here this evening. Pick your favourite one, Laura. Oh, well, I'm just going to self-promote then. Yeah. <laughs> um, next Wednesday, if you're interested in Explainable AI, please come along to our community house in North Melbourne where myself and Noon Vandersuk will be talking about getting inside the black box. We have a quick message before we get out of here. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Thanks to our guests, Thomas Drake and Dr. Nalin Araka Kilage. Triple R. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.